like to invite you to take your Bibles today and join me in turning to the New Testament Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be in our study today. Mark chapter 6. We've already received great messages today, I believe, in testimony and in song, and now we're going to look to the preaching and teaching of the Word. Many of the summers of my childhood and youth were spent on our family's farm in Colorado, and I can't think of a better place to spend a summer than southwest Colorado on the farm. And of those great memories, most of them include, in one way or another, my grandfather. And uh, my granddad was just about the greatest guy you could ever know, and we did so many things together. We'd fish together, and we'd hunt together, and we did a lot of great things, but most every afternoon, he'd, he'd say, come on, Stevie. He called me Stevie, and we'd get in his truck, his 1976 F-150. It had been silver at one time, okay? And we'd get in that truck, and we'd drive around the property, and he'd look at the crops, and we'd look at the wildlife. Sometimes we'd park and walk a little bit, and, and uh, that was always a great time. I always looked forward to the afternoon drives with Granddad, where he just wanted to uh, look the farm over and see how things were doing. And I remember the day where we walked back to the truck, out on the edge of the property after one of those afternoon walks, and Granddad walked to the passenger side of the truck. Now, that confused me because there were only two of us, and I was only 12. I'd never driven before, but uh, Granddad said, Stevie, you drive home. And I thought, you know, are you sure? And uh, he seemed sure. He got in the passenger side, and, and uh, so I, I got in the truck, and I started it up. And, and uh, I recollect on the way back, he told me to slow down a few times. But other than that, you know, I kept the wheels down. And the, uh, other than the speeding a little bit, he, he said I did a pretty good job. And I was glad for that. That was my first time to drive. And uh, it was an enjoyable experience. I'm glad I was able to make that memory with my granddad. That same summer, there was an absolute infestation of jackrabbits in that part of the country. And if you're a farmer by trade, rabbits aren't cute, cuddly, little furry creatures. They can become quite a nuisance that can, can tear apart a, a field in, in no time at all. And so uh, we used to often, my granddad and I, go out there and, and uh, we'd take some guns and we'd go rabbit hunting. And that, that uh, provided a lot of different things, but it uh, provided a little relief, relief to the fields. And the afternoon following my first drive ever, I said, Granddad, why don't we uh, take our drive out to the edge of the property and we can hunt rabbits together? And uh, he said, Stevie, why don't you take my gun, take the truck, and you can go. And uh, I want you to know, this little heart of mine was just pounded, man. The thought of that, I got granddad's gun. I already had my own by 12, but it was a single shot, and his was semi-automatic. So that got me excited. I get granddad's gun, and I get granddad's truck, and off I go. And I was so excited about it, and I had a sense of expectation, but I had no idea what to expect, and, and yet the trip was made. It was a great uh, day, the first solo drive of my life. There's a process through which we all go in life where we watch other people do things and we learn. As the process continues, those other people then watch us to make sure we're picking up on what it is they're putting down. But there comes a point in all of our lives where we have to be willing to launch out and do some solo work, to take what we've learned by observing, to take what we've learned by being observed, and then put into practice that which we've gleaned in the process of it all. And that's the time that we find in the lives of the apostles in the text before us. They'd watch Jesus work. And they had participated with, with the work as Jesus would observe them. But the time had come for them to launch out onto their own journey. And I'm sure they were nervous like I was getting in that truck. I'm sure they were excited. They were entering a new phase of life, a new phase of ministry. And we studied their journey. And I want us to think of this together today. If you'd be so kind as you join me in standing, we'll look to God's Word together. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be. 
We're going to begin reading in verse 7, and if anyone is wondering why we're beginning reading in verse 7, it's because last week we stopped reading in verse 6, and we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, having a great time together as we're doing so. We're going to pick it up today in verse 7, where the Bible says, and he, speaking of Jesus, he called unto him the twelve, and they began to, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should... Take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now we come to a place in Mark chapter 6 verse 14 where there's a parenthetical section. We're going to come back to that section next week. And so we're going to skip over some verses to pick up this this line of thought that we find, finishing in verse 13, I want you to turn with me over to verse 30, if you would. Verse 30, where the Bible says, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, and told them all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. If you would please go back to verse 8 in our text, Mark chapter 6 and verse 8. Near the middle of that verse, there are two words that will allow to serve as the center for our study this morning. The Bible says in verse 8, their journey, their journey. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you're on your journey. Now it's for the Lord, it's of the Lord, but it's your, your journey. And there are principles in this passage that help us today to know how we can make the most of the journey of our lives. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know for a certainty if you were to die that you'd spend eternity in heaven. I appreciated the testimony so much today and and the way Jose shared that he just wasn't sure. But he came to the place where he confronted that uncertainty. And and in honesty, he, he said, I don't know and I'd like to know. And maybe you're here today and like... Like Jose, you're, you're not sure if your life were to end today that you'd spend eternity in heaven with God. I want you to know your journey can begin today as we understand what it is, not just to walk by faith, but to be born into God's family by faith. We can be helped. I've got to tell you, I'm very excited to share with you what we're going to learn today. And uh, I hope for God's sake, for the word's sake, for your sake, that you'll get involved in this study with me right away, early on. And I think we can be helped in the midst of all of this as we think of our journey. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the powerful way with which you've ministered to my heart today. Uh, please work now, we ask. I pray, God, that as you're looking in, you'd be happy with everything you're seeing going on in this room today. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the disciples had seen the good of ministry. They had seen the sick that were healed. They had heard Jesus as He so clearly and ably taught the truth. They had seen the bad, so to speak, of the ministry. 
they had seen those situations that seemed so frightening and those situations that seemed so insurmountable. They'd even seen what we might call the ugly of ministry. In our recent study, we observed how Jesus Christ returned home. He went to his hometown of Nazareth, and the people there rejected him. They summarily said, we don't want to have anything to do with you or your teachings, and and how ugly that was. Yet the apostles had had gleaned a pretty in-depth understanding of what the ministry was and what all it entailed. But they'd never really launched out on their own and done something individually. With great wisdom, Jesus sent his closest followers out on what we might call today a short-term missions trip. He didn't just release them all together, but in the process of of their learning, he said, I'm going to send you out for a little while. I've got a place I want you to go. I've got a work I want you to do. I've got a way in which I would like for it all to be done. And the Bible says that he partnered them up. He began to send them, the Bible says, by two and two. This was an important day In the life of Christ. You see, the work of Jesus was both to the world and for the world, but Jesus, being God the Son, understood that his life one day was going to end in death on a cross, not for any sins that he had done, but for the sins of the world, for all of our sins. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed. He only needed it a few days. That after three days in the grave, he'd raise again to life. He would ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus knew that although being God, he is eternal, that his time on earth was limited. And so Jesus very wisely invested the majority of his influence in the lives of 12 who would serve as the leaders of this new movement we call Christianity. And so this was a very important day in the life of Christ as as these men he's bringing along and teaching and and exposing them to truth and letting them observe and and observing them. He's, He's sending them out. This was a very important day, yes, for the disciples, but certainly for Jesus Christ as they began their journey. I want you to have your notes nearby that were provided in the bulletin. And, and as, we, as we consider this study today, I want us to find ourselves in it. And the first element we find in this text of Scripture, we find the source of their confidence. As Granddad said, to take his gun and take his truck, I was excited. Uh, I was nervous. I was uncertain as to how it would all turn out. But I was excited enough that I went ahead and made my way out there. There was a little something inside that said, although I don't know how it's going to turn out and what all I'm going to face, I'm going to go for it anyhow. And I think the disciples had some similar types of thoughts and feelings. They they knew what it was the Lord was giving them to do. I'm sure there was some trepidation in it all. But they, they pressed on. And what allowed them to follow through on that to which they had been called was the confidence. Although they didn't know what the future held, they, they had a confidence that said, we'll press on to the future. And friends, please, please nail this down, and we're going to build on this as we go. The confidence they had to forge ahead into life originated in Jesus Christ. It was in Jesus that they found confidence to say, you know, we're going to boldly head into the future. We're going to boldly go where no man has gone before because of a confidence that comes from knowing Christ. Now, as you look to your text once again, please, in verse 7, you're going to find that the Bible says that Jesus called unto him the twelve and began to send them. In the, in the language of the New Testament, that word send comes from a Greek word. The word is apostello. And I say that word because as I say apostello, maybe you hear the word apostle in it. These twelve were the apostles. They were the followers of Christ. When Jesus sent them, he used that specific word for a reason. I want you to hear the definition of the word apostle. Uh, It it means to, to send someone with a special commission to represent another and to accomplish 
His work. And so when Jesus sent them, they understood in that word that he was saying, listen, you're going to be my representative. You're not doing your own work. You're doing my work. And all the resourcing that you're going to need to accomplish that which I've given you to do is my responsibility, not yours. When Jesus sent them, he was saying, in essence, I'm going to take care of everything you're going to need along the way. You see, that gave them the confidence they needed to move ahead. They were not uh, on their own. They represented Jesus in all they did. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus gave them power. With their calling came a divine enablement. And I want you to know today, the same could be said for you. If you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're here today and you're living the life that God would have you to live, I want you to know that everything you need to do, that, that, that everything you need to do, what God has given you to do, you're going to find in Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. You can succeed in every venture that the Lord gives you as you find His enabling. I always enjoyed playing football growing up. And when I was in junior high school, I played flag football. And when we made the crossover to high school, uh, it was a whole new thing. And I remember our coach, you know, he was some kind of sadist. He enjoyed uh, beating people up and running them into the ground. And he'd run us so I thought our legs would fall off. We did push-ups so I thought our arms would fall off. And he just about absolutely, literally killed us on the practice field. But our coach loved to give us a little, little two-word sermon on occasion. He would tell us to be strong. He didn't tell us to get strong. He kind of saw that as his job. He would develop it in our lives on the practice field. As we exercised, as we worked out, uh, as, as we wore ourselves out, getting ready for whatever it was that was coming next. He would say, be strong. He would encourage us with the reality that if we would have confidence in the preparation, that we then could take the field of play with the mindset of a winner, not with a loser. It was all in this understanding that we need to be strong. Sometimes he would say this, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but it's the size of the fight in the dog. How many of you heard that one? And that's talking about that mindset. And, and as people of faith, as we understand that we can find our confidence in Jesus Christ, we're not going to go through life trying to figure out what it is we can do in relationship to our own strength. We're going to say, God, what do you have for me? You see, Paul, in writing to the believers in Ephesus, said this, Finally, my brethren. Now, friends, how many of you know what it means when a pastor says, Finally, my brethren? It doesn't mean anything, okay? And so he said, Finally. They thought, well, this guy's almost done. And he wasn't. He had a lot yet to say. But he said, Finally, my brethren. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Friends, please hear me. Marriage is not easy. It's not easy. But if we'll go to the God that created the family in marriage, say, Lord, I need to learn from you so that my marriage can be all it would be. I want you to know that I believe not based on your ability, but based on the power of God that you can find a joy in your marriage that seems to be so elusive to families today. Rearing children is both a joy and it is a challenge. The understanding needed to raise one child may not be relevant to the next as they're so different in the different stages of life and, and every day of their life. We've never parented them that day before. We're starting over in many ways every day. But if we'll understand that the principles and precepts needed to do a good job as a parent come from the Bible, we can learn and grow. I'm saying our marriages can be strong and our parenting can, can, can be good and, and, and suitable to raising children. I'm, I'm saying there are business principles in Scripture that apply to those occasions when the economy is rolling and times when the economy is in the tank. 
I'm not saying to you that we're not going to have times where we do better than others. I think that is part and parcel with life. It rains on the just and the unjust. But I'm saying this, not based on your power or intellect. You can find principles in Scripture that will enable you to do all that God would have you to do. James, the half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, said this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men, liberally, and it braideth not. Now, I'm not going to have anybody answer this question out loud, but I wonder, is there one among us who'd say, I don't need any more wisdom than I've got now? I know all there is to know. I don't need any help with anything. I'm the brightest, sharpest, most able-minded and body person ever to live. I don't need one word of encouragement. I don't need any wisdom at all. And I don't think one among us today would say that. And God says, listen, I've got a path for you. I've got a journey for you. As the apostles had their journey, so do you and so do I. And he says, I want you to know the confidence you'll need in life. It's not going to come from yourself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come from me. Jesus wanted his followers to begin their learning by understanding that they would have to rely on him. And to that end, the Bible says, and I want you uh, please to join me and look into verse 8. The Bible says this. And commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey. Nothing. Save a staff. A staff. I think we all get the idea of a staff. And so Jesus tells them, in Mark's accounting of this occasion, guys, don't take anything. Oh, but take a staff. Take a staff. It's interesting, as I, as I considered Luke's accounting of this same passage of Scripture, if the verse is there in your notes, take a look, but I'll read for you in Luke 9. It's a parallel passage to that which we're studying in Mark. The Bible says, and he said unto them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor script, nor bread, none I could go. So in Mark's gospel, he says, take a staff, take a staff. In Luke's gospel, a parallel accounting, Jesus says, don't take a staff. And I thought, oh my goodness, a contradiction right here in the Bible. How many of you know if there's a contradiction in scripture, it's probably a contradiction with our understanding, not with God's ability, okay? As I got studying that, I discovered that, again, in the, in the languages of the Bible, there was more than one word that we would use to mean staff. In the Gospel of Luke, we, we find there was one word used, and in the Gospel of Mark, another. Again, both identified correctly in the word staff, but, but the first word staff could mean a club, a defensive weapon. Jesus said, don't take that one. Don't take a club. Don't worry about protecting yourself. Don't worry about self-preservation. Don't worry about what might be coming. Don't take a club with you, but the other word means a walking stick. He said, you're going to do some traveling. Yeah, you're going to need to stay walking, and you're going to keep going. You're going to need to have a walk with me, so to speak, but you don't need to worry about, about protecting yourself. And then the Bible goes on. Jesus said, no script. The script is from a Greek word, para. It means, interestingly enough, a beggar's bag. It was common in that day for priests or some secular or pagan religionist to, to have with them the parah, the beggar's bag, and to go around. And when people saw that bag, they might take pity on them. And Jesus said, listen, I'm sending you out. You're my apostles. The last thing I want you to do is to go around begging off people. That's not how it's going to work. You're not to be on the take. I want to send you so that you can give. I don't want you to be professional beggars. To this, Jesus added, don't take food or money. He said, wear sandals, and the, the idea in that word is a very simple uh, type of a shoe. He said, uh, uh, don't take an extra coat. And all of this was designed to teach the apostles that they could depend upon and draw their confidence in the Lord. And I want to ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life where you were in a position where you absolutely needed God to come through or it just wasn't going to happen? And it's been said so many times that 
Until God is all you have, you'll never learn that He's all you need. And Jesus, in training these apostles, said, listen, I, I'm going to break you all the way down to the point where you're going to take a journey on my behalf. I've got a work for which you're to be faithful in, in completing, but it can't be done without my help. Now I want you to be in a position where you're going to understand you can trust me. You can depend upon me. I have no idea what it is you're facing. These testimonies we heard today, these folks, as they were entering into those times in their lives, they had no idea what it is they were going through or why it is that they were going to go through those things. But we saw they learned through it all they could trust God because God's a wonderful God. We see their source of confidence. We see as we move on the significance of their companionship. They prepare to leave under peculiar marching orders. None of us would think of taking a trip with no gas money or without a suitcase. But that basically is what Jesus asked them to do. And he added an important component that would affect their lives greatly. The Bible says that Jesus began to send them forth by two and two. Friends, Jesus is sharing there is great significance in companionship. The man that is often considered the wisest man ever to have lived is Solomon. Ecclesiastes 4, he wrote these words. He said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him. Listen, how grateful we are for the presence of God. We've talked about that. But Jesus is helping us to understand here there is power in partnership. We're inundated today with a superficial life. We talk about our, our followers on Facebook or our friends on Facebook and our followers on Twitter, whatever it may be. And, 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 and I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that. I don't know a lot about that. I'm not on Facebook. I do tweeting a little bit. But listen, we can become so superficial in life that we live vicariously through a computer screen, never actually developing a real relationship with another human being. And Jesus was telling his followers, listen. I'm all you need, but in the course of doing your work for me, you need to understand there's value in partnering up with others. There's power in partnership. I, I want you to make sure that your companions, your associations are right. One of the greatest assets in the life of one who is making the most of that which God has given him will be friends who encourage us to follow Christ. Practically, we know they were to go out and witness. The Bible's clear that you needed two witnesses to validate a claim. So Jesus, from that practical standpoint, sent them out. 2 Corinthians 13 says this, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. There was an accountability built in. We know that they could learn from one another. They could help one another. We know that two get more done working together as a team than two working together individually. That's the law of synergy. Synergy is defined in this way, the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. Friends, listen, one of the great determiners in life are the friendships we hold. The fact of the matter is nearness is likeness. And sometimes it would do us well just to evaluate, not with a judgmental, critical mindset, but say, Lord... Are those closest associates in my life, are they the kind of people that I want to pattern my life after? Do they embody those principles found in the Word of God? Nearness is likeness, and we need to be very careful about those that we choose to spend the most time with, for inevitably we'll be, begin to adapt their mannerisms and the way they approach life. And, and this, this principle is one reason I'm such a big fan of the small groups here at Coastline. I watch people in our, in our church many times over the years who seem to struggle over and over and over and over. 
And sometimes we'll get bitter at God. Sometimes we'll get mad at the church. Sometimes we'll get mad at a, at a teacher or a Christian friend. And, and many times the reason for the struggle, as I've observed this over many years now, it's because they've never one time known what it is to actually have a legitimate commitment to the Christian life and to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. They're on again, off again, hot and cold, one foot in, one foot out, here today, not tomorrow. And then they act like, what's wrong with this Christian life, man? We want to hang out in the back on the fringes. We want to do our own thing, disengage from what's going on. And it's a very disingenuous thing for us to actually claim that we're on our journey, to use the expressions from the Bible, for the Lord, when we're not. Jesus says, let me tell you how to have a great journey. Understand the power of partnership. There's power in partnership. And this is why I'm such a big fan of our small groups. Because Christians do well when they do life together. Something powerful happens when people of faith come together and they're honest with one another and they're all seeking to live by the same principles in God's word and, and, and they're wanting to head in the same direction in the sense of furthering the work of Christ. Something wonderful happens when Christians share their life with one another. Jesus said, let me tell you how to make the most of your life. There's a significance of companionship, but as we move on in this text, we see the satisfaction of their consequences. Now, many of us think of consequences in a negative sense. But really, all consequences mean are the results of our actions. And, and the apostles were learning that they would be satisfied with the consequences when their actions were consistent with the will of God. Now, let, let me have everyone look up here for a minute. Uh, in, in our lives, could we say, I am satisfied with the consequences that I'm seeing in my life right now? And I think most of us today, if we're honest, we'd say, no, I'm always thinking of an area or two or three or more I need to be working on. I'd like to see some greater things happen. And we look at the end result, and there's a principle here that says, you know, you need to take a step back and figure out what goes into what happened and understand there's a process, not just a product. Jesus says here that some would receive them well and help them in that, and that's good. And Jesus said that some would not. Of those that received them well, the Bible says that Jesus told them, there abide till you depart from that place. And Jesus said of those antagonists, those that are against you, he said it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Now, how many of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah before in the Old Testament? That was a place of great sin. I was asked one time if I'm a fire and brimstone preacher. And I thought about that, and I knew it was a trick question. And uh, so I said, yes, I am, like Jesus and John the Baptist were, okay? And fire and brimstone was real in the Bible, and the Bible tells us that God fired it down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wasn't because of God, it was because of the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. We think of the destruction there, what a horrible destruction it was. But, but Jesus says, listen, it had been better off for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for these that reject you. But Jesus said, you're to go and you're to teach and do my works. Some will receive you and some will not. But he said, that's not the key thing for you guys. Just do what I've asked you to do. That, that's where you're to find your joy in life. Not in how everyone responds to it, but have you done what I've asked you to do? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, said, I've planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. What was Paul saying there? He said, you know, there are times in my life where as I teach the truth of the Bible, sometimes I'm just like a farmer who plants a seed. He said, sometimes my brother here, Apollos, another teacher of the truth, sometimes he's kind of like someone that comes along and waters it. But he said, you know, if any good thing comes it's of God. It is God that brings the increase. We don't always know where we are in the continuum of this ongoing work of God. I've had times where uh, I've prepared sermons, and I want you to know that as I think of this, I've got some great responsibilities to each of you. My first responsibility before you, 
is that I walk honestly and humbly before my God during the week. That's my first responsibility for you. Because I can't do what needs to be done here if I'm not walking with God. And as I walk with God, I have another responsibility. And that responsibility is that I would study the Word of God diligently. And seek the filling of the Spirit so that when I stand to speak, I'll say things that are accurate according to the Bible. That are pleasing to God. It's an understanding that you are not the audience. Your evaluation of me is not of utmost importance. God is the one today who's the audience. There's an audience of one. We're working together. I want God to be pleased when he watches you learning. I want God to be pleased when he watches me teaching. I want God to be honored in it all. But I've got a responsibility before you to walk with God and to study so that I can feed what the Bible calls the flock of God. And that means that my study's not complete until I've received a message from the Bible that I think can be helpful and practical and true to the text. But I've had many times over the years where I stand to deliver truth that I think is very helpful and relevant. And as I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm thinking, you know, I don't think they're getting this the same way I did. And sometimes that can be the student's problem, but many times it's the teacher's problem. Many times I'll be thinking, boy, I'm just, I'm not getting through here. I'm not doing an appropriate job getting this truth through. There have been times on Sundays like that where I'll be standing in the back and, and I'll be wondering, I, I, nobody seemed to get what it was that I was so excited about in my time of study. Nobody seemed to get fired up by that which encouraged my heart. And someone will walk by in the course of that time and say, boy, that was just for me today. Now, don't say that to me today, okay? That was not the moral of that story. That was not the purpose. No one say today, thanks for the sermon, Pastor. The point was this, there are times in all of our lives where we think we're doing what it is we're supposed to be doing, we don't see the result that we're expecting to see, and so we step back and evaluate what's going on here, and you know, Jesus Christ was telling the apostles, the product is not your deal, the process is. God doesn't tell me to coerce people into trusting Christ, or to return to a life of faithfulness, or to respond in one way or another to a message, He tells me to stand and speak boldly the Word of God. That's my responsibility. The responsibility of the hearer of the message is to let the message into their lives and to determine, Lord, what would you have me to do with this message? Sometimes we put such pressure on ourselves to perform in one area or another that we lose the joy of it all. Sometimes we get so uptight and take ourselves so seriously that we take joy away from others as well. And I'm not speaking of a cavalier approach to life, but I'm saying that the joy is not always in the outcome. The joy is in doing what we know to be right. Sometimes we think in a business setting, for example, success in business is getting filthy, stinking, rich. And if you're in business, I think getting filthy, stinking, rich is not always a bad thing. Nobody's working for nothing. I think making a good wage, a fair wage, a a profit, I think that's a good thing to do in business. We all understand that. But friends, I want you to know this. Success for the Christian in the business realm is not the size of the paycheck at the end of the day. It's knowing that we follow God's leading into the workplace. We've had a heart of integrity and honesty and humility. We've done things the way God would have them to be done. Success for us is not just what comes on the back end it's the process through which we go to get to the product i want you to notice something that seems very small in this text but i think it's a helpful truth in verse 30 here in our text if you want to turn over to verse 30 of chapter 6 the bible makes a point if you're live with me this morning say amen that was most of you that's very helpful i want you to understand this i think this can help you in verse 30 the bible says this The apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had. What's that word? And what they had. 
All right, that was marginal. We'll start over on verse 30, all right? And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had and what they had. So they come back to Jesus after they've been sent out. Jesus, listen to what we did and what we said. The emphasis from the disciples was on that which they had done and what they had taught. Now, again, there are many times parallel passages in the Gospels. We've looked already at what it is Luke had to say. We're studying the Gospel of Mark, obviously. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we have an interesting insight from Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, if we were to take the time to go to verses 7 and 8, we would find that Jesus, as he was sending the apostles out, he emphasized that they were to preach and heal. They were to teach, then do. The emphasis was on the delivery of truth and then on the action. But the response after the journey from the apostles was on the doing and then on the teaching. They were emphasizing the product and not the process. What a very human thing for us to do. Jesus says, I want you to go and teach and do. We come back emphasizing the doing and not so much of the teaching. And friends, when we do that, we're heading for a difficult time in our lives. They reverse the order because they emphasize the product over the method. Real success in life is found in knowing and doing the will of God and trusting God with the outcome come what may. I'm very much a goal-oriented person. As I think of our church, I oftentimes will try to imagine, Lord, where is it you'd like for us to go in the next year? But I've discovered along the way that there are some things that only God can do. And it's disrespectful for me as a follower of God to establish a goal that has more to do with God than me. And so over the years, I've said, God, help me to establish goals that are work goals. For example, we could theoretically say we're coming to a big day as a church and we're hoping for special things. We could use our Christmas musical on December 11th as an example. Somebody could say, well, Pastor, how many people do you want to see come on that day? I'm human. There are numbers that I think of in my mind that I'd love to see come. But let me, let me help you with a better way of looking at that. My goal for that day is that every one of us We think enough of Jesus Christ and the occasion of his birth and the good things that God is doing here in our church to take thousands of invitations and invite people in our lives. You see, that's a goal we can handle. If my goal were X number of people, I'm putting a pressure on myself that God never designed me to handle. And sometimes as we go through life, we get like the disciples and we reverse the order and we try to put ourselves in a position that essentially is a position that God should hold only. And when we reverse that order again, we take a pressure into our lives that God never built us to sustain. That's where the anxiety comes from. That's where the frustration comes from. That's where the stress comes from. When we try to put on our shoulders something that God says, no, 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 disciples, I try to train you here. I want you to put that on me. You're just needing to be diligent to do what I've given you to do. As we move on in this text, we see the secret of their continuation. They were working. Their adrenaline was no doubt pumping. There was a need in their lives that they did not see. Have you ever had a need that you didn't see? Have you ever had somebody point something out in your life and you're thinking, oh, wow, I I didn't see that myself. Sometimes we'll even deny it. That's where most of us begin when we're confronted with a need like that in our lives. And Jesus comes to the apostles and he points out something to them. In verse 31, the, the Bible says this, And he, Jesus, said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going. They had no leisure so much as to eat. This was their journey. They were busy. 
They were doing what Jesus had called them to do, what Jesus had sent them to do. And in their doing, they were reminded of the necessity of periodic rest. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, listen, guys, here's what you need to do now. You need to come yourselves apart. You need to rest a while. You've been after it. You've done what I've asked you to do. You've learned some lessons. And now what you need to do is rest. You see, there is no work that we will undertake that is more noble than periodic rest along the way. Now think of that. They weren't resting from the work. They were resting for the work. I've heard it said, as Jesus told them to come apart, I've heard it said that if we don't come apart at times in our lives, that we'll come apart. And there are many people on the sidelines of life who when they reversed the order of understanding what was God's part and what was our part, they began to press so hard, feeling as though it was up to them that had to generate everything, that in the midst of their going and, 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 and the blowing through life, they destroyed relationships, they wreaked havoc on their spirit and their emotions, even physically in their body as they just pressed without understanding that there was a secret here for continuation and it was, it was resting. I think this is oftentimes underemphasized for fear that some will take this and run with it. That'll become their favorite doctrine in the Bible, you know. It is possible to be lazy in life. It is possible to be a slacker in life. But that's not at all what we should think of when we've been faithful to do what Jesus has done. What should follow on the heels of that quickly is a time of rest, reprieve, refreshment, re-energizing. It's good for us. Years ago, I heard a statement that stuck with me. The statement said we should divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. I want to encourage you every day of your life to set some time aside. I think this principle can help us spiritually. I think it can help us physically and in every other way. But set some time aside to be still, to be alone. Spend that time with God. Spend that time in prayer. We think of meditation as some Eastern thing. We think, oh, that's what people in cults do. No, meditation's in God's Word. We all need that quiet time where we're ruminating on the truths of God. Spending time being still, being quiet, being alone. I think it's helpful to take some time every day just to divert daily. I think it's helpful to withdraw weekly. I don't know what your schedule's like. But I think it'd be grateful to get a, a little more prolonged period of time than we would take just on an ordinarily daily basis and on a weekly basis, take some time to just rest and reprieve, downtime, alone time. I think it's good to withdraw uh, weekly and then to abandon annually. It's wonderful to take a break. I'll tell you, I, I enjoy our family vacations. I enjoy the time with the family. I enjoy my time alone. I like the sleeping in. I like getting off of the regular routine. And I always know we've done a vacation right when about the time it's done. I just can't wait to get back to doing that which God has called me to do. And I can't help but think that there may be some here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, Jesus said, I want you to go teach and do. And they came back saying, look what we've done. Oh, and we taught as well, and you're saying, I know what it is to reverse the order. My goals aren't to work eight hours and get the check, it's to get the check, and then putting the other on the back. You know what it is to take a pressure upon yourself, and you're just worn out. Would you let Jesus tell you today, rest a while? You see, God took six days to create heaven and earth, and then he rested on the seventh. There's so many reasons for that rest. There's a great picture of the love and grace of God in that rest. However, I want you to understand, there's also a principle there that on the heels of work, 
there should be a time of rest. It's important for us. As I pulled away from that farmhouse in my granddad's truck, I was ecstatic. I was filled with joy. I couldn't believe I was driving all by myself in granddad's truck with his gun. That was a good day. My granddad's truck in time became my first truck. I fixed it up and got that thing painted and got rims on it and made it fast and made it loud and all the things, you know, 16-year-olds think you just have to do to a truck. I loved it. Had a 40-gallon gas tank I filled to the brim the night it was stolen by a horrible human. That is another story I'll have to share another time. As exciting as it was to drive that truck, in time that excitement kind of faded a little, you know? Nothing against my granddad, nothing against his truck, but even in the course of years since that time, just driving in general, it doesn't quite do for me what it did then. As a 12-year-old, if granddad would have said, hey, uh, you you can drive home after church today, that's all I would have thought about in church. Man, I get to drive, it's going to be great, I can't believe it, this is the biggest thing ever that's ever happened to me, but I'll probably drive home here in a few minutes, but it's, it's not anything that's getting me all excited. Nonetheless, every day of my life, I drive somewhere to do something. And here's why I drive. I drive because my driving takes me places. So it is in our lives for God. When we do it His way, we'll find a progress emerge. The excitement is wonderful. But some have yet to learn that you can't possibly go through life on some euphoric sense of excitement. You can't live from an adrenaline rush to adrenaline rush. The great joy and the the life that accomplishes much is one that understands that life comes down to this. Knowing what needs to be done. Doing it for the right reasons through the power of God. That's the sweet spot of life. God, what's your will? What's your desire? I'm your follower. I want to do those things in life that please you. And God, I want to do it for the right reasons, not for a selfish motive. I I don't want to, to do this so I can show off what it is I've done. I want it to be all about you, God. Your glory. Your power through me. Jesus made that crystal clear. You see, that is the journey of faith. That's the journey of faith. The apostles, as they were followers of Jesus Christ, found that they were on their journey. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, your life also is your journey. I want to ask you today, how is your journey going? Our Father, thank you for an opportunity to consider this.